0: It's good to be back with you. don't have my PowerPoint up yet, so give me a, a moment here. <coughs> Yesterday I mentioned a uh, cruise that my wife took me on in the Caribbean, the Cosmology Cruise, Scientific American. And uh, <coughs> I made the point that we had a bunch of professors practicing scientists engineers, all involved in this, about 120 of us on this boat, and there were lectures uh, every day, and uh, I attended the lectures, it was fascinating, and Linda stayed in the motel room, or the, the stater room, I guess you could call it, not her thing, and, uh, <coughs> and I also... Said that I wasn't there to argue with them, so I never really engaged them at all. But uh, one of them, Jim Bell, was the uh, director for the Rover Mars Rover Project. He was the guy guiding the rover around uh, the surface of Mars a number of years ago. He's a professor of astronomy at uh, Cornell University. And of course, the major interest in this Rover Project is the search for life. It's critical to the uh, materialists that they find life of some sort. And of course, every time they find water someplace, there's shouts of glory, and, and uh, because that's a fundamental constituent that they have to have, or life could never exist. So anyway, he was going on and on about the primeval soup bowl theory, where you have this Concoction of chemicals and it's bombarded by uh, cosmic radiation, thermal radiation, heat, lightning, and by chance, uh, some DNA or some protein molecules form, and then some DNA, and pretty soon a cell and uh, an amoeba crawls out of the muck. (coughs) So I listened to all this and I. just asking the Lord, you know, should I say anything? Because I, I didn't want to, you know, mix it up with these guys because that wasn't why I was there. But I, don't know, I just felt I, I should say something. So I, I raised my hand and I said, Professor Bell, I'd like to sh- share something from a book I read by uh, Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith. Uh, his three earned doctorates. Uh, I talked about him yesterday. One in biochemistry, one in pharmacology, and one in uh, Organic chemistry. And he worked for many years the United Nations and Turkey in Turkey in the health area. And uh, Dr. Smith gave this illustration. He said Imagine you're flying in a small plane, and in the back of the plane are four stacks of three by five cards. And they spell out L I F E. They're arranged in these stacks, but they, as letters. And I said you fly out over your house and you push these cards out the sides of the plane. Now, what happens? Well, you get a a decline to disorder. The system moves from order to disorder with the passage of time. And these cards flutter down all over the countryside. Now, as those cards flutter down, they're being bombarded by cosmic radiation. Let's say there was even a little lightning storm that zapped some of them. And, of course, a lot of thermal radiation, a lot of heat. But they still just scattered all over the place. So you go land your airplane, go home, go up in your you – got a little uh, deck on top of your house. So you go up there to have a cup of coffee. And,
1: to your amazement,
0: all those cards are right there, and they're, they're all stacked up, L-I-F-E. You say, oh, my goodness, how did that happen? So it turns out there was some Boy Scouts that had some bacon and eggs and toast and jelly for breakfast. And they took the energy from the toast and jelly and the bacon and the eggs, and they applied it to walking all over the countryside, picking up those cards, climbing up on the roof of your house and stacking them into four piles, L-I-F-E. So the, the new ingredient in the system was intelligence that uh, could give direction to that energy. Just bombarding something with energy doesn't do anything. It's gotta be directed toward a purpose. So I said, Dr. Bell, where are the Boy Scouts in your scenario? And he came back uh, with this. He said, well, it's the lightning, the thermal radiation and the cosmic uh, radiation. In other words, he just repeated himself and totally missed the point that just bombarding the primeval soup bowl with radiation doesn't do anything. There has to be direction. And that, that protein that does that uh, is necessary. The problem is, how do you get the protein first? It's kind of a chicken and the egg difficulty. But uh, <clears throat> I went up to him later on and talked to him personally a little bit about probabilities of this randomly happening. And he and I was very low key and gentle. I wasn't arguing or anything. I just tried to be very gracious and calm and and uh, he's he kind of snapped back at me and he said, uh, don't talk to me about probabilities. Anything's anything could happen. So I thought, well, this is not gonna go anywhere. You need someone believe that believes <coughs> that. But that's where they are. I cite that because here's a top guy, one of the real thinkers. And uh, yet they have no answers to these things. They just brush past it and make assertions. Uh, I've talked to many of them, and uh, it's really amazing to me how these kind of obvious facts, like we talked about yesterday, somehow just don't grip them. They don't, they don't feel it like, say, you and I do. And I think that's the work of the Holy Spirit. We just are open because the Spirit of God has uh, worked in our hearts, and we see things. Okay, this morning we want to get into purpose in life in a little more detail. And I want to look at the fall of Satan as the entree into our discussion. And we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 28 if you have a Bible. The New Testament certainly declares that... um, There's a spiritual warfare going on. Of course, the classic passage would be Ephesians 6, wouldn't it? And there is satanic involvement in our lives. But the popular picture of Satan is rather grotesque. He's got a tail and horns, and he's red, and uh, he's kind of mocked. But the scriptures describe him as a beautiful, shining creature, very attractive. In fact, uh, he is so deceptive that uh, many people mistake his righteousness for the righteousness of God. <clears throat> In a jungle, if you light a campfire, uh, not, after not too long a period of time, you'll see eyes around this campfire, you know, the firelight glittering off the eyes. And as the embers of that fire die down, The eyes get closer and closer and closer. And it seems to me that that's a good metaphor for what's happening in Western civilization. As the fire, the embers of biblical Christianity are being dismissed by popular culture, starting with the academy, the uh, resistance to satanic and demonic influence on our culture increases. And that's one of the reasons, perhaps the main reasons, than the sin nature. Culture doesn't need a lot of help. We have a propensity to depart. But it's uh, just going further and further, becoming coarser and coarser. And uh, the satanic supernatural is becoming more and more prevalent. For the last uh, ten years, my wife has been working with women who are subjected to satanic ritual abuse as little girls. It's the most horrifying stuff you can imagine. Uh, Just north of where I live, a monument is uh, Larkspur, where Anton LaVey used to live. He died, but he's the head of the Church of Satan, and there's a compound there for satanic worship. Uh, So we're in a spiritual battle here, and this battle started a long time ago. In fact, it started in eternity past. So let's take a look at where it began. We're in Ezekiel chapter twenty eight, and the first part of this chapter uh, deals with an earthly prince of Tyre. And <clears throat> often in the Bible the, the kings are metaphors for a power beyond them. For example, the uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon becomes a metaphor for uh, the fallen one, Lucifer in Isaiah fourteen. All of the kings of David pointed to a higher king of David, David's greater son, the Messiah. And that's what's happening in this passage. The second half, from verses 11 to 19, speak of a fallen king of Tyre, a mighty angel. And it it breaks into three basic areas. His original state, his pride, and his condemnation. Let's take a look. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up lamentation over the king of Tyre. Now lamentation in Scripture is a soul rending song of sadness. Uh, If I was going to exaggerate a little, you can imagine the tears of God as he gives this prophecy. He's sad that this happened. It broke his heart what happened. And say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of protection, full of wisdom. Perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Most likely, as we'll see in a moment, that refers to the celestial Eden that existed in the pre-Genesis 1-1 universe. Every precious stone was your covering. And he lists them all to just magnify the, the beauty of this creature. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, etc., And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets, was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub. So we're not talking about an earthly king here. We're talking about a mighty angel who covers. Some of your translations render that Hebrew word guard. Um, Most Hebrew scholars understand it by cover. Uh, And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. There's 12 things said about Satan in in these verses, and I want to comment briefly on each one of them. First of all, we're told that he was the model of perfection. Literally, it's the seal of perfection. In other words, they had these these little wax seals, and they would put it on documents or on cylinders or on boxes, and you'd press it, and they say, this is uh, ownership of the person marking the seal, but it also signified something special about the entity that was sealed. And he was the seal of perfection, the model of perfection. And the king, the Lord Jesus, had placed a personal seal on him. Secondly, he was full of wisdom. Uh, This means he had super intelligence. That's a message to us, obviously. Don't think you can outthink him. (laughs) Don't think you can uh, outsmart the demonic world. He was perfect in beauty. And he ruled from the pre-Genesis 1-1 Eden. Uh, That's a striking thing. Uh, This particular Eden was different than the one in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden in the Bible was a place of vegetation and uh, flowing water and a very uh, earth-like thing. But this particular Eden was covered with stones and and uh, 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 reflected God's glory. Merrill F. Unger uh, put it this way: "This beautiful ethereal spirit is said to have been in Eden, the Garden of God." This is doubtless a reference to a primal Eden in the celestial world, not the Eden of Genesis. Some of you may know Unger's name from you know Unger's Bible Dictionary. This garden of God was the place where the greatest angel walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire which were not present in the earthly Genesis Eden. While the Eden of Genesis was a place of verdure and natural beauty. The next thing it's said about this mighty being is that he reflected God's glory. That's the point about those stones. See, jewels do not originate light, but they reflect it. So to pile up jewel after jewel after jewel, as Ezekiel does, is kind of an emphatic way of saying this being reflected more of God's glory than any other created entity. He worshipped God perfectly perfectly. That's the reference to the settings in the sockets. Uh, these are tabrets or tabrets and pipes. So it suggests that he was in charge of the music and the praises of the heavenly hosts. The tabrets or the settings were percussion instruments like a tambourine uh, or a timbrel. They're mentioned frequently in the Bible. Varied in size. Sometimes they were hit with a bare hand. Sometimes they even had sticks doing it. So those of you like me who don't particularly care for drums in church, I'm sorry. Uh, here they are in heaven. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, the uh, pipes were uh, wind instruments like flutes. So it's basically saying that this being was in charge of praise. Uh, the music, he was uh, the worship director of the heavenly choir, something of that nature. And also, we learned that he was a mighty angel. He was the anointed cherub that covers. Now, the cherubim were the highest order of angels. Remember, they guarded the Garden of Eden, and uh, they, they guarded the Tree of Life. And when Moses went to commune with God, the divine answer came from the two cherubim inside the Holy of Holies. We're also told. That he was the anointed cherub who covers. Same word uh, used of Messiah, the verbal form of the word Messiah to anoint. Uh, It means that he was a ruler and he was placed on the mountains of God, which in biblical speak is commonly a phrase for the seat of government, the seat of authority. So here is the appointed ruler in the seat of authority of the government of God. Whatever that means, he obviously had some kind of central responsibility in the administration and organization of the pre-Genesis 1-1 universe. As you go through the Bible and you look up all the verses for angels, cherubim and archangels and whatnot, uh, there's actually a hierarchical arrangement, an orderly system here. I remember when I sat in a theology class with Ryrie, And he laid all that stuff out. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I I just angels, you know. I didn't realize they're organized to do stuff. And uh, at any rate, by the way, the next time you hear people talking about the quest for extraterrestrial life, say, yeah, I, I agree. There's millions of beings out there. They're called angels, and maybe they'll find find one someday. I don't know. He also walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Uh, Not sure what that means. Uh, A lot of the commentators connect it with the presence of God, the stones of fire, meaning the presence of God. So here was an angel, a mighty angel who was an administrative ruler over the pre-Genesis 1-1 universe. He had immediate access to God. He walked in God's presence. Furthermore, we're told he was perfect in all his ways. The Hebrew word for ways here is the Hebrew word derek, which means which means behavior. It's way of life. So here was a being that whose whose godliness, if you could say it that way, his character was absolutely flawless. And it's important to note too that he was a created being uh, from the day. That you were created, uh, the text says. Well, that forever puts to death the idea of an eternal duality between good and evil. Satan is a created being. He had a beginning. And according to scripture, he will have an end. But then the 12th point is shocking. Unrighteousness was found in him. Uh, As the, uh, the text says, verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness or unrighteousness was found in you. Whoa. Well, how can unrighteousness be found in such a being? It's a question that people are asked about Adam. If Adam was sinless. How in the world did he sin? How can a sinless being sin? How can evil ever enter into a sinless being? Now, if you uh, have the answer to that, I'd like you to come up and explain it to me afterwards. Because this is as close as the Bible ever comes to saying how evil entered the universe. And the text mocks us. We we beg the text. Tell us, well, how'd that happen? Silence. So we don't know, but apparently it was possible. And the nature of his sin is horrible. It was the sin of pride. Verse 17. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. He became more fascinated With his gifts than the giver. Now, how many times have we seen that in humans? Where they are more impressed with their gifts and skills and attractiveness than they are the one who gave it to them. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Now, let me just pause here. Make one pertinent observation. As you know, in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3 says, Do not appoint a novice to a position as an overseer. I remember when I was a senior in uh, seminary, I was praying about my next... Job. I was on the staff of Campus Crusade, and what I wanted to do was set up national training centers all over the country so that 100% of all Crusade staff would go through these regional training centers, and it would be 50% biblical and 50% ministry skills training. And so that was, that's what really excited me. And I was studying in the book of Philippians, And I came across this uh, passage where Paul speaks of Timothy, and he says he has no one like him who has been proven. And the word is uh, subjected to a test and came out of it successfully. The Spirit of God really spoke to me, and I realized that uh, I wanted to implement something I'd never done. And so for that reason, when Crusade offered me to become the director at Cornell University, I had done that at SMU. I said, yep, that's what God wants me to do. And Linda and I moved to Ithaca. But As I look back on my life, some of the conflicts I got in, uh, I can see a lot of arrogance. Uh, As a young man right out of seminary that had all the answers. And... (coughs) Uh, it would have been very appropriate, as I look back on my life, Bill Bright would have made a big mistake probably, to put Jody Dillow in charge of a lot of stuff because God had a lot of things to do in my life before I was even qualified to do something like that. It was just it wasn't just a matter of skill; it's a matter of character. There's a tendency in the youth, and Paul points out to this, to think they know more than they do, and to be somewhat proud and arrogant. And it takes life experience to. To shave some of that away. Well, that was the sin of Satan. He was proud. He was arrogant. So he was condemned. I cast you to the ground. Now, this is a little bit problematic. Most of the commentators take this as what is called a prophetic perfect in Hebrew. And what the prophetic perfect is, it expresses a future event as a past tense. In other words, it's so certain that this will happen that the prophet can can describe it as an event that's already occurred. You see a lot of this, by the way, in in New Testament Greek as well. Uh, So he was cast to the ground, but that actually happens in the book of Revelation where in in chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, where uh, uh, we're told that he will be cast to the ground. It says that he'll be No more. In other words, it's a reference to his final condemnation in the lake of fire. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time was short. So he had a beginning, and he's going to have an end. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, I think that's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 28, 15, 16, right in there. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. That woman who gave birth was the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And that that people gave birth to the Messiah. And uh, there's going to be a terrible persecution of Israel in in the Great Tribulation. Well, what was God's response to this? I love the way Uh, Donald Barnhouse put it. He says, we shall give this rebellion a thorough trial. We shall permit it to run its full course. The universe shall see what a creature, though he be the highest creature ever to spring from God's word, can do apart from him. We shall watch this experiment and permit the universe of creatures to watch it during this brief interlude between eternity past and eternity future, called time. In it, the spirit of independence shall be allowed to expand to the utmost, and the wreck and the ruin which shall result will demonstrate to the universe and forever that there is no life, no joy, no peace, apart from a complete dependence upon the Most High God. Possessor of heaven and earth. Now, I think in your handouts, I accidentally uh, put some stuff out of order here. Let me get my head back around this. Uh, Let me summarize first, kind of tie together where we've been.
1: Yesterday, we established
0: that the universe gives evidence that it was designed. It knew we were coming, like that man who took a vacation in uh, the hotel room in Hawaii and everything was prepared. We are uniquely located to observe this design and see God's glory. We're in the Goldilocks zone. We have an atmosphere that is transparent to visible light. And uh, it's clear, and we are in the spiral arms of the galaxy uh, where there's no dust. The Trinity was in loving communion in eternity past and conceived a perfect plan. The Shining One was created as God's perfect one, his Viceroy. The Shining One, I'm picking that up from Isaiah 14, where he's called Lucifer, which means Shining One, fell and became the Satan, the adversary. Now we get into the main subject of what I want to talk about this morning. God plants an inferior creature, man, in the Satan's world. Adam fell and the invisible war begins. Now the Lord of hosts could have destroyed this rebel immediately. He could have answered the challenge with raw power. Satan has said that pride and independence are acceptable. But instead, God brought into existence a plan which would forever answer this satanic challenge. A plan that would involve God himself in the answer. And he would demonstrate his own principles and his way of life. For millions of years, a mournful silence and darkness had reigned. Had God forgotten, had he decided to ignore this challenge to his sovereignty? Had he decided to look the other way? Silence was deafening, the darkness universal. And the angelic sons of God yearned for the darkness and silence to be broken. And suddenly it was, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And there was evening and morning, the first day. At last, thought Michael, God's archangel, our Lord will reign once again. But then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, over all the creatures on the ground. But said Michael, What's this? A man? This creature is so weak, so inferior to the Satan. Why has the king placed him in the Satan's world and told him to rule there? How can such an insignificant creature, much lower than the angels, possibly accomplish the divine purpose? Surely, Michael thought, a mistake has been made. Some of you may have read C.S. Lewis's trilogy uh, out of a silent planet, *Perelandra*, and I forgot the name of the third one. But anyway, he sets forth the concept that Satan ruled the earth before the creation of man. Satan revolted and caused the earth to become abnormal, or as Lewis expressed it, a silent planet. Now, why didn't God smash Satan immediately? Well, he chose to enact a plan which would involve himself in the consequences of this rebellion and fully endure its pain. In this way, he demonstrates exactly the opposite of what Satan practiced. It is by humility and dependence that life and meaning are found and the highest honors are gained. Now, one thing we need to understand is according to the scripture, the earth still belongs to the Satan. In Luke chapter 4, for example, remember Satan led Jesus up to the pinnacle of a temple and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I will give you this domain in its glory for it has been handed over to me. Uh, Jesus never challenges Satan's right to make that offer. The condition, of course, was I want you to worship me. So it is written, Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now judgment is on this world. He's called the ruler of this world shall be cast out. In another place, he's called the God of this world. Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. And he's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. 2. So God has not yet Release the world from the power of the evil one. And of course, this is the major cause of the utter chaos we see uh, throughout our world today. But what he did is he launched an offensive force. And this offensive force was an inferior creature, much less than Satan. And God gave him three commands. He said, first of all, I want you to reflect my image. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. A little hint of the Trinity there, our, plural. In the ancient world, when a household wanted to demonstrate its submission to the ruler, the king, they put a little statue of this ruler, an image of the statue on the mantle of the fireplace or someplace prominent in the house. This was to say that King so-and-so rules here. Uh, you know, I remember when we were in Eastern Europe, every, every place you went, you saw pictures of Brezhnev or Ceausescu or whoever the the, uh, the ruler was. Uh, and in uh, North Korea today, uh, boy, if you don't have that picture or that little statue of, Kim Jong-il or whoever his son is, I forgot his name now, uh, you could be literally sent off to a prison camp. So this, this uh, little image thing was something that signified submission to the ruler. So one aspect of this uh, image idea probably is that God wanted to plant images of himself, spheres of people who were in submission to his way of life all over the Satan's world. So you've got an invading force now that's going to live by a completely different set of principles and is going to conquer. It's going to have rulership over the Satan's world. Now you can imagine the Satan doesn't like that. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds, over the sky and the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that is upon the earth. And finally, they were to reproduce A godly seed. And God created the man in his own image. and the image of God he created him. Male and female. So this image is a combo of male plus female. God blessed them and said to them. Be fruitful and multiply. The only command the human race ever obeyed. And fill the earth. And subdue it. Now... I'd like to more directly get into this issue of the meaning of life here. First of all, we need to talk about God's eternal purpose. And clearly, throughout Scripture, it's the manifestation of His glory. I like Ephesians 1 verse 6, 12, and 14. Verse six, he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us. In verse 12, to the end that we were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. This is central. Uh, to the extent that we align our lives with that purpose, it's going to be extremely key to our finding meaning and significance in our own lives. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Habakkuk 2.14 But then why did he create? What was his creation purpose. First of all, to establish his rule and to destroy the works of the devil. The Satan ruled this world and God intends to take it back by a unique means. Secondly, he wants to establish the futility of independence Now, how does he do this? He takes an inferior creature, the man, and he puts him in Satan's territory and tells him to live by a completely alternative set of principles uh, of dependence and trust, and he will be exalted to a higher position. So the lower, lesser creature living in dependence and trust will gain back or take back that which the superior creature took in independence and unbelief. Smashing pride, giving a moral answer to the Satan's challenge. But thirdly, he wants to model and participate in a moral response to the Satan's challenge. And that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ who became man and lived as he wanted men to live, and God highly exalted him. The third objective, his redemption purpose, is to raise a multitude of servant kings that would rule in the new heavens and the new earth. In 1000 BC, David laid out as a shepherd one night, and as he looked up into the heavens, He said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him lower than Satan and the angels, but you crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. Well, that hasn't happened yet. But that's man's destiny. One day, we are the ultimate answer to the Satan's challenge. And men living in dependence and trust will obtain back that which the Satan stole through independence and unbelief. And that victory, of course, gives meaning to history. It's the millennium. The uh there will be a, a consummation to history, a completion within history. Not as the millennialists suggest that Jesus comes back and then there's a catastrophic, catastrophic finish to the whole thing. There, in that view of, uh, of history, there's no satisfaction, there's no consummation, there's no resolution within history. It just is shoved into the eternal state. Only a premillennial view gives us a resolution within the historical process. And it was Jesus himself who illustrated these principles. I love this passage. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now here we're going to see the exact opposite of Satan. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. That's the place that Satan wanted. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and confess him as Lord. So on the one hand, we have the shining one, the Satan. He was a creature. And he demanded his rights. And he sought to be like God. And his end was destruction. But on the other hand, we have the Lord Jesus, whose very essence was God. He was God. And he didn't hang on to those rights. He didn't insist on them, but he laid them aside. And he became like those he came to serve. He didn't exalt himself above them. And the result was exaltation. So you see a symmetry here. This is the answer that God himself involved himself in to to God's way of life and how uh, we are to function in God's universe. And this is the way he wants us to live. Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Now let's look at this warfare in a little more detail. Why don't we take about a ten minute break now and then we'll do a short uh, wrap up of this after that and have time for Q&A well, I don't know about you folks but this, this was the session that really, really caught my attention are you guys enjoying this? yes this was excellent so thank you Dr. Dillo. and Dr. Dillo, you, you mentioned that one of your favorite shows is uh, you know Star Trek The Next Generation right? Well, I was kind of thinking, you know, you and Jean-Luc Picard, you kind of, you kind of resemble him a little bit. I just, I, I can see why he was one of your favorite characters. I see, I see his face in yours a little bit there. Uh, Dr. Dilla has been so gracious to come here again, and, and we're glad to have him. I also wanted you to share just briefly about your upcoming revision to the book and uh, when it will be you mentioned in July it will be available tell us how we can get it and maybe a, just a, a word about the cha- a change or two that you've done in the revision we want to hear a little bit about that uh, new revision to the reign of the servant king so let's give a hand again to Dr. Dillow <laughs> a number of years ago was about eight or, eight or nine years ago I think I came across a website that was dedicated to the uh, to responding to the reign of the Servant Kings. And there was a couple of websites I've seen, but most of them uh, I didn't feel were worth responding to. But this one was pretty serious and very well done. A medical doctor had written a lot of articles. And I read his articles with interest and thought about them. He was very accurate in representing uh, the viewpoint that I uh, was suggesting. And then he would pick it apart point by point. And made some good points, brought up some things I hadn't thought about here and there. But uh, at any rate, that said, okay, it's time to revise. And uh, so I committed myself to no stone unturned. It's now 1,300 pages. And uh, so uh, <laughs> yeah, I need to give you motivation here. This, I'm killing this sale. <laughs> um, yeah, I got into all of the passages that uh, had not been discussed and all the objections I'm aware of, at least, that have come out in journal articles and books and websites against the viewpoint of so-called free grace, which I call the partner view, coming out of uh, Hebrews 3.14. We are partners of Christ if we hold fast our confession firm to the end. Uh in terms of changes, there's a few changes in uh, my views that have come up, uh, principally in the area of uh, Gehenna, uh, the and the, the idea of entering the kingdom, uh, which I don't, I no longer believe has to do with personal salvation, but has to do with entering a kingdom way of living, uh, leading to honor. Uh, there's a, a lot of discussion of the rich young ruler. A slight change in my views there. I concluded that he was a genuine believer. And uh, oh, it's just massive. I can't. Oh, I'd have to get the table of contents in front of me. But there's a lot of changes, and probably about 30% of it is pretty much borrowed from the previous version, and the rest of it is, for the most part, new material and uh, Roy Zook is uh, editor he's the editor of Bibliotheca Sacra the Dallas Seminary Journal and he's finding tons of errors and uh, I think it'll be available in July Um, in terms of how you get a hold of it my plan is to go ahead and put up a website jodydillo.com and you'd be able to click on it and order a book uh, it'll also be through GES, Grace Evangelical Society. I'm going to have it in Lagos, and there will also be a Kindle version available. So you can have it any any way you want it. Um, the current version of uh, Reign of the Servant Kings is available in Kindle now. And I, I've... It, I haven't made it available yet, but I've actually got it ready to distribute in paper, if anybody wants that copy. And it's going into Logos, uh, probably within the next month or six weeks. Okay. Unfortunately, it's going to have to cost more, because it's 1,300 pages. Uh, Okay, the purpose of our existence... I want to look at these passages in Genesis and then wind this up with what I call the invisible war. When Adam fell, there were, first of all, a judgment on the serpent. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, her seed is a he, a person. And this is, of course, the first anticipation that God is in the future going to deal with what happened in the garden through a person. And that person, of course, is the Lord Jesus. And he will bruise your head. In other words, Satan, you will get a fatal wound and you shall bruise him in the heel. You'll bruise him, but it won't be fatal. Uh, veiled reference, of course, to the crucifixion. Um, Secondly, there was a judgment on the woman. And this uh, is an interesting passage. I think it's been widely misinterpreted in a lot of popular literature. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. All you ladies can identify with that. I often said that if men had babies, the human race would die out. (coughs) Yet, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you now for some reason, the popular literature uh, really just even this translation it, it's just not what the the Hebrew text says, and you'll see this in a lot of uh Hebrew commentaries but uh, let me let me read it exactly. Uh, By the way, some of uh, you identified with that with sexual desire, but that's definitely uh, not the idea. Uh, It's a uh, uh, okay. Uh, Your desire will be for your husband; he will rule over you. Now, uh, yeah, okay. Here's where I was going with that. A lot of people have taken this as a uh, statement of a pattern for Christian marriage. You know, women are supposed to be submissive and, you know, they're going to be uh, husband is the boss or something like that. But actually, that word for rule and the word for desire are a little bit different. The word for uh, desire means prompt to evil. Uh, Or prompt to your desire will be to take control is the way it's used in Genesis four, verse seven, for example. And in response to that, your husband will rule over you. Now, that's not just a, that, that's not a statement of love your, you know, husband, husband is the head of the wife. It's a statement of male dominance, of abuse. And, and this is not a, a, a description of divine plan, but the consequences of what happened in the garden. It's a, a Prophecy of the terrible abuse women have endured throughout the ages, throughout all countries, at the hands of men because they're stronger, more aggressive, and more dominant. This is not a prescription for marriage, but a prediction of the catastrophe that will result when when, uh, both husband and wife become self-centered. The wife wanting to exert control over him and the husband wanting to exert a forceful, violent dominance over his wife. Uh, I mentioned the other day uh, that my wife has been heavily involved with wounded women for 10 years and it's just absolutely staggering. Something like 35% of the women in the United States have experienced some form of sexual abuse. And it's quiet. People don't talk about it. And, uh, and there's a, every place my wife goes, she runs into women that have been put into, into cult abuse when she speaks at these uh, conferences. And uh, some of the worst abusers are prominent Christian leaders in mission organizations and churches and Bible colleges. Uh, it's just terrible. In the Old Testament, that was called Moloch worship, where the women were breeders producing babies that could be sacrificed to Moloch. And this happens in uh, satanic cult abuse in our our country today. So the point here is not that this is God's intent. In fact, it grieves him. But it'll be a consequence of the self-centeredness that will emerge uh, because of this sin. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. In other words, sin wants to control you. Same word that's used of the desire of the woman. Because Eve's desire probably refers in this context to her prompting Adam to sin, it is better to translate the verse, your desire was for your husband, Having overstepped her bounds, she would now be mastered by, and this is Alan Ross in his commentary on Genesis. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you, should be understood to mean, Hurley notes, that this should be translated, your desire will be to overthrow your husband, but he will rule over you. And uh, the word for desire frequently means desire to conquer. But then there's a judgment on the man. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I command you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field, etc. So, from Adam and Eve on, at the point in time you and I emerge from the womb, we draw a little ring around ourselves and proclaim ourselves Lord of the Ring. Uh, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. very common poem that summarizes the human predicament by Ernest Henley, called Invictus. So, as a result, the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So let's summarize uh, the angelic conflict. And it's a conflict between the demons and men instigated by Satan through these demonic forces because he hates what God has placed us in this world to do. Long before Genesis 1-1, God created the original universe. Satan was the ruler over planet Earth and rebelled against God. As a result of Satan's sin, God judged the earth on which he ruled and ruptured the fabric of space and time. In Genesis 1-1, God moves to refashion the universe to make it habitable for man. Second key point. This world is Satan's domain. Third, God plants a fifth column in enemy territory and commands him to rule and have dominion over it. God has placed an inferior creature, a man, in the territory of the superior angel, the Satan, and asked him to rule with a disposition of submission and dependence. That's the whole point of the tree in the garden. Thus, out of the lowest man, God will bring the highest honor. A man living in dependence would gain back that which the Satan took in independence and unbelief. Well, the first Adam failed to achieve human destiny, and the entire creation was subjected to death and decay. And a warfare was established, the angelic conflict between Satan and those in Adam, the seed of the woman, But a redeemer was promised, the last Adam and the second man, who by sacrifice and a life of love would reverse the failure of the first Adam and fulfill human destiny. And as we are united with him, we obtain the destiny to rule and dominion, have dominion that was uh, our mandate in the Garden of Eden. Okay, let's uh, tie this down on a kind of a concluding practical point that, uh, give you something to think about. Uh, my suggestion here is uh, pretty obvious, but sometimes we don't think about the obvious. And that is, if we want to find meaning and significance in our lives, we need to align ourselves with God's purposes, whatever they are. And there's fundamentally three of them, an the eternal purpose, a creation purpose, and a redemption purpose. And to the extent that our lives are aligned with these purposes, uh, our lives find significance and meaning. Well, his eternal purpose is the manifestation of his glory. Now, as we go through our day, we have many thoughts and we make many decisions. Uh, Decisions to relate to certain people, decisions to respond in certain ways to people, decision to buy things, decisions to go someplace. And the real issue that God is looking at here is how will this thought or this action make God known? In other words, is that a conscious uh, reflection in your mind as you go through your day? Uh, gee, should I do this or should I do that? Would God be made known more fully this way or, or that way? Or would, if I did that, would that veil him? I, I understand many, many things, you know, it's kind of ambiguous. But it's, it's important that we approach our thought life and our decisions with this perspective. Lord, today I really want to make you known through my life. Then secondly, if we're going to align ourselves with his creation purpose, which is to demonstrate the superiority of faith and servanthood over independence and unbelief. Well, if I'm going through my day and I'm thinking about that issue. I might want to say, well, how am I living by faith today? There are two things. Well, There's more than that, but there's two critical things that Jesus wants us to know. These are the most important things he ever taught. The first is that God loves you infinitely, perfectly, completely. And the second is, trust me. Because if he loves you perfectly, completely, you can trust anything he brings into your path. You can always trust him, even if it looks bad. So until this is where most people get hung up, it's on the first point. Uh, I don't think he really loves me or I don't feel it. And unless a person has that rock solid conviction that God is totally committed to him, loves him perfectly, then it's difficult to trust him. And that's his second thing. But see, trust emerges naturally if you are loved by an infinite being who's totally committed to you. You can trust anything that comes your way. So the question you might ask, am I living by faith today? Am I trusting him in this situation, in this situation? And how am I serving and deferring to others since his creation purpose involves servanthood? Am I a servant or do I insist on my own rights? Uh, We face this all the time, don't we? Uh, It's a conflict in marriage. Uh, You have no right to treat me that way. I like to give you women a little insight. Uh, when Linda and I were first married, uh, we had a knockdown dragout about something. I can't remember what it was, except it was my fault. It always is. <coughs> and uh, so I, I, I do something that I've discovered that men are extremely good at you roll over and, and go to sleep. Of course, Linda's sitting here. How could he be so self-centered? You know, and she's awake for the next couple of hours, all stirred up. And I'm, you know, and I'm just zed out. Now, there's a theory behind this, ladies. The theory is that if you sleep on it, your wife will forget about it, and you won't have to say you're sorry. That's the why we do that. We figure you'll just get over it. You know. So the next morning. Linda gets up, I'm still in bed, but she's got three babies to take care of. But I've had a hard week, so I need to sleep in. It's Saturday morning. Of course she hasn't. And uh, she brings me breakfast in bed. And I thought of this passage in Romans 12. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. point was, is that we want to, we just want to cling on to our rights. We, we don't want to humble ourselves and say, honey, I'm sorry. That happens in marriage both ways, doesn't it, all the time. It happens in interpersonal relationships. It happens in negotiations and business deals uh, where selfishness creeps in. But then there's the third purpose, his redemption purpose is to raise up a multitude of servant kings who will manifest his way of life and one day rule in the kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. And that brings up questions daily like how am I pursuing the goal of being a servant and am I living with the end in view? In other words, when the shadows lengthen, and the final hour comes. What would you like to be as a person? What? How would you like to be known? I think I gave this illustration in my book. You may remember it, but Stephen Covey talks about living with the end in view in his book on uh, um, the secrets of uh, success. And one of them is successful people live with the end in view. Uh and he says, imagine yourself at a funeral, and you move into the back of the, the, the funeral parlor, and there's a memorial going on, and organ music is playing, and uh, there's a bunch of people that come in up front, and it's this man's wife and his kids. There's some people from his church. There's a, some colleagues from work, and it turns out this is an open casket funeral, so people are coming down front. Walking past, giving kind of a last gaze at the person who died, and then going to, you know, to sit down. So, Colby says, "You get up. You go down front. You look in this casket." And to your surprise and shock, that is you in the casket. This is your funeral, ten years from today. You go back to sit down, wonder what's going to happen. And all these people up front are gathered to say something about you. Your wife, your kids, colleagues from work, people from your church. And then Kobe asks, what do you want them to say? And your answer to that question reveals what are some of your deepest values. Now, we don't all live by those values consistently, but it's important that we identify what's really important, what the end would look like if it could be the way we wanted it. That's living with the end in view. And my wife's uh, latest book has a great title, What's It Like to Be Married to Me? When I say that, people think this is about me. But it's about her what's it like for a woman to be married you know for uh, it's addressed to women about uh, what what's it like to be married to them the individual woman and she starts out with a marriage purpose statement uh, what would you like your husband to say about you feel about you believe about you in the last hour of your life live with the end in view now to the extent that we align ourselves with these purposes these are short prayers all day it's a matter of bringing them to thought Uh, it's not going to be perfect you'll forget Uh, but it's something that God wants us to do he wants us to evaluate everything in terms of our eternal destiny and these are some helpful questions that can help zero that in for you okay I cut out tons of material <laughs> on this uh, simply because I've, it's already kind of an overload and I, and I felt if I did all the stuff that I had normally done, you guys would just be completely buried instead of partially buried. So I thought it'd be good just to end by uh, throwing it open for Q&A. Maybe there's certain lines of thought here that you'd like to pursue that I didn't touch on. And maybe there's even things we could be sharing with one another. So... Uh, I'm going to stop here, and if you have some things you'd like to share, questions you'd like to ask, let's spend some time on that before we wind up. How much time do we have, Neil? Okay, good. Well, the point that I was making on that cast to the earth prior to uh, the creation of man in uh, Ezekiel 28 is that those were prophetic perfects. A prophetic perfect describes a future event as a past event, as a way of emphasizing its utter certainty. And uh, if you look that up in a Hebrew or a Greek grammar, they'll list all kinds of illustrations of this throughout the Bible. So it's not an uncommon thing. That doesn't prove that that's what it is there, but it uh, is a valid suggestion in view of the usage of these things, and that enables it to fit nicely with Revelation 12, and that's why I went that direction. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, he's talking about the uh, discussion in your notes from last night about the creation of the earth and when it occurred. Um, there's uh, several different viewpoints of Genesis one one and one two. Uh, The traditional view is that Genesis 1-1 is the creation of the entire universe, current universe, out of nothing. Uh, Satan fell sometime during the creation week, and all of this occurred about 10,000 years ago. Uh, uh, There's another view that's quite prominent in a lot of the technical commentaries called a pre-creation chaos. In other words, there was a whole universe, uh, and the earth existed in that universe prior to Genesis 1.1. Satan fell, eons of eternity passed, the universe was judged, the the world was judged. And Genesis 1.1 should be translated something like, In the beginning, when God began to create, a number of translations actually insert that, uh, the earth was without form and void. In other words, at the point in time God began to create, the earth was already in existence. It was already without form and void. And it's possible to interpret that phrase, without form and void, as a a metaphor for judgment. It was in a chaotic, judged state. And then verse 2 and following rectifies the situation. God uh, fills up the void, that which is empty, or excuse me, he he gives form to that which was without form, you know, separating the continents from the water and the atmosphere from from the surface of the earth. And there's an organization going on. And in the second half, he fills that which was empty. He puts fish in the water, birds in the sky, and animals on the land, see. Uh, Then the third view is the so-called gap theory, which says that Genesis 1.1 was... uh, in the eons of eternity past, we don't know. That was creation of the earth, the solar system, whatever the evolutionist wants to say. The dinosaurs, everybody uh, lived. And then between Genesis one and two, there was a fall. That's when Satan fell and the earth was condemned. And you, death and destruction reigns on earth. And you get the fossil record for however many billions of years the evolutionist wants. And then in verse two, and so. The, Then it says, and they render it, the earth became without form and void. Not was, but became without form and void. And then verse 2, there was a restoration. In other words, God began to refashion the earth about 10,000 years ago to make it habitable for man. Now, the view that I put down in that little paper I handed out last night was uh, a kind of modified version of the traditional view namely that Satan existed in eternity past in a pre Genesis one one universe, but we don't know anything about it except some faint allusions in Ezekiel twenty-eight. And uh, the administration of God was from the Garden of God, which was Eden, which was not on earth, but was in this it was a celestial Eden in this pre-Genesis one one universe. And Satan fell and uh, God responded in Genesis one, 1 10,000 years ago by creating the current universe, uh, placing the Satan in an earthly garden of Eden, which was to mirror the celestial one. But man, the, the lesser creature, was to rule from it instead of Satan, the greater creature that ruled in the celestial Eden. And uh, this occurred 10,000 years ago, just like the traditional view says. that's the one that I outlined in that uh, paper last night. How did they... I read the 10,000-year timeline in the past. How did they come up with the 10,000 years? Yeah, a lot of people ask that. Um, Of course, the question gets down to fundamentally, what's the length of a day? At least that's a critical part of the issue here. And there's no question that day... Uh, can mean a long period of time it does in a number of places and and those that hold to an old earth will cite those those passages Uh, but yom the Hebrew word yom when it's coupled with a numeral like 50th yom or 220th yom or first yom in every other place in the Hebrew Bible where it's associated with a numeral it always means a 24 hour time period Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it couldn't mean something else in Genesis 1, but you've got to say, well, why? I mean, is there any evidence here that it's different? Secondly, every place the word yom is used with like the evening of a day or the morning of a day or evening and morning, every other place in the Bible, that means a 24-hour period. Now, it doesn't prove it. It could be something else here. Uh, Then thirdly, you've got Exodus, uh, what is it, Twenty. Uh, where I think it's around verse 7 or 8, you'll work for six days, and on the seventh you're supposed to rest because God created the world in seven days, or six days, and then he rested. Well, uh, it looks like the time period that men are supposed to work is the same time period that God worked. These could be figures of speech, could be a metaphor, it's all possible. And then the fourth thing is the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11. When you add up the age at birth, so-and-so begats, when he was 130 years old, begat so-and-so, and and he lived 418 years, and and and, uh, when he was 120 years, he begat so-and-so, et cetera. You add up the ages at at birth of all those people, you get about 2,000 years from Adam to Noah, and about 2,000 years from Noah to Abraham, and we know pretty certainly that Abraham lived around 2000 B.C. So you got 4,000 years there to Adam. Now, there could be gaps in those genealogies. I just because it says so and so begat so and so, well, that could mean, uh, you know, five generations down. I mean, that's what you, that's what Warfield did, and, and that's what the old the old earth guys do. It's not impossible, but it does seem to me that, that how, how far can you expand these genealogies? You know, you could put a million years between each generation in order to make it work, and uh, how would you even have records? Uh, Well, we have a genealogy from Adam to his kids to their kids and so on. And how old was Adam when he was born? Or when he was created, rather. And how long was he in the, in the garden? He was in the garden for 50,000 years. The devil say he was there for 38 days. He said he died Yeah, We have his age at death in Genesis. And we have the age at which he gave birth to his first son. Well, did
1: he was did he start? well, that's the
0: that's the, yeah yeah I understand that's the assumption that uh, when the Bible says Adam was I forgot what it is 800 whatever many years that's from the day he was created that's the assumption uh, I understand where you're going but that's why they don't think it was 50,000 years <laughs> yeah. academy is our university system in the United States, which is uh, by and large uh, committed to the idea that uh, the neutrality of, of knowledge and absolutes and that no one can know anything for certain. And for the vast, vast majority of them, they have presented a worldview to our young people that uh, is contradictory to biblical Christianity and even mocks it in some cases. A lot of them are just, a lot of the professors are not like that in terms of mocking it. They're just, they're good people just teaching what they believe. But nevertheless, the perspective in the academy and in our law schools, that's why we get, uh, you know, activist judges, is all against uh, biblical worldview. So as a result, it permeates our whole culture. The professors. That's what I'm talking about. But at one time, like all the schools, they were Yeah, they they were most of them were started with a Christian base and like Harvard and Yale and Princeton. And they all fell away from it. Yeah. Anyone else? Uh, yeah, uh, I, we, we are supposed to be like Jesus in Philippians 2.5. He says, uh, have this, what's he say, uh, mind among you, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped at. He didn't cling to his rights. And he wants the Philippians to be like that, who emptied himself and became a servant. So, yeah, God wants us to be deferential in relationships to other people and not always insisting on our own rights but to uh, approach other people from the standpoint of not to use them or to win but to say how can I serve this person How, uh, and that of course plays out in marriages, it plays out in your relationship with your boss, it plays out in your, your relationship with the people that are under you in an organization. Uh, I, am I answering your question? I mean, I'd say very yes. It's very definitely. That's how we're supposed to be. And although it's very hard sometimes. Yeah. So, uh, yes, sir. Well, I break them into three categories. They're all over the New Testament. Uh, The first category is the category of honor. Well done, good and faithful servant. In other words, we live to hear the master's well done. Uh, The second category is opportunities for ministry. Uh, When the Bible talks about five cities, ten cities, I don't think anybody here cares much about being the mayor of a city Uh, or some some people probably do. But uh, I think these are figures of speech for opportunities uh, to serve. And when we talk about ruling biblically, that's serving. So to rule with him is to serve. So we have opportunities to minister that will be expanded based upon our faithfulness in this life. Then the, the third category is intimacy with God. Uh, there's a enhanced intimacy that those who have cultivated intimacy with him now will experience, and that's a reward. I think a lot of Christians think that when they hit eternity and get a resurrection body, there's a reset. <clears throat> and even though they have not cultivated intimacy with Christ... Uh, during most of their Christian life, all of a sudden, all that's going to be wiped away. Uh, And they'll have the same intimacy as everybody else, you know. And, of course, the obstacles to intimacy will be removed, and there will be uh, closeness, obviously. Uh, But like Billy Graham said, uh, everyone's cup will be full, but the cups will be of different sizes. So the degree that you want uh, enhanced intimacy with Christ throughout eternity, there's a correlation with how you cultivate that relationship with him now. So honor, opportunities for service, and enhanced intimacy. And all of those uh, rewards in the New Testament, I think, can be very naturally organized into those three topics. Well, the the, uh, the fall of Adam occurred in history. The redemption occurred in history. The Son of Man entered into history. And therefore, uh, symmetry uh, demands a resolution within history to this catastrophe. And the... Uh, okay, does it 100% require it? No, God can do anything he wants. But there's a beauty and a symmetry to the premillennial approach, namely that within history there's a resolution. Uh, the Edenic mandate to rule and have dominion is fulfilled in history. The Satan's uh, challenge is answered within history by a race of servant kings ruling over the millennial earth. Whereas in the millennial system, you don't have any resolution in history. Jesus comes, boom, that's it. You, everyone's ushered into the eternal state. And that's possible. Uh, I just, it, it's aesthetically more pleasing to me to believe that there will be a consummation and resolution within the historical process. doesn't prove it, but it sure makes a lot of sense to me. And when is Jesus coming back? i um, <laughs> My latest calculations are December 21st when the Mayan calendar runs out. <laughs> do, you, do you think we're close to the end? I can remember back in the 60s and 70s. I announced that all over the college campuses when I spoke and uh, were in fraternity houses and whatnot and talked about World War III in the Middle East and the coming Russian invasion and... and uh, so I've been a little hesitant to, <laughs> since that point. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know anything that everyone here doesn't know. But we do have the interesting thing that there's some major movements of history. And one most striking is that the Bible does clearly say that in the last days that all of history will revolve around the Middle East, particularly the city of Jerusalem and a restored uh, Jewish nation and that's not just an event I mean we're talking history now it's fulfilling that, it's moving in that direction and uh, so yeah that makes me think hey you know we could be close here but you know, I don't know (laughs) Okay, anyone else? Going once? Twice, goodbye.